This time last year, we began a, a journey through the Gospel of Luke, a record of Jesus' life. Uh, we went for 10 weeks through the first nine chapters of Luke in a series called Unexpected Beginnings. We saw Jesus arising from unexpected places and doing miraculous and mighty deeds. And we concluded that journey with the question, who do you say I am? Tonight, we begin a new nine-week journey through the second part of Luke's gospel, uh, the journey that Jesus makes towards Jerusalem. And as Jesus goes along on this journey, he will be calling people from all different walks of life and all different types and all different places, and he'll say, will you count the cost and follow me? And so this next series is going to be called Count the Cost. We'll see that as God's king makes his way to Jerusalem to be crowned as God's king, we'll see that no matter how you respond to him, it will involve cost. Either you can count the cost now and reap the benefits in the life to come, or you can reject the king and count the cost in the age to come. Either way, it's going to cost you, however you respond to Jesus king, uh, as king. It was the famous missionary uh, martyr, Jim Elliot, who said, He is no fool who gives up that which he can never lose to gain that, sorry, that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. And our hope and prayer is that as we follow Jesus on this journey towards Jerusalem, that you will see that he is worth giving up everything for, that no matter what the cost, he is worth following. So our journey with Jesus to Jerusalem is going to be a difficult one. Expect it to be challenging. Expect it to be uncomfortable. Expect it to to put you out on a limb and, and, and to keep causing you to make choices. Ultimately, it will cost you all. But remember that with Jesus, whoever gives up their life for his sake will keep it. And Jesus has promised not only life to the full in this life, but life everlasting In the age to come. So, to guide you through our next nine weeks, we've got these little sermon series booklet called Counting the Cost. You'll see on the inside that there's some space for you to write notes as we go through each week and have the Bible taught to us. There's some Bible reading suggestions if you want to read through in your daily Bible readings. There's a memory verse and some calendar dates and things that are coming up in the week ahead. Over the page, you've got your Connect Group Bible study material. So bring this along to church, take it along to Connect Group. And our hope and prayer is that this will be a journey of faith, a journey of growth, a journey where everyone will count the cost and follow Jesus. So let me pray as we prepare to go on this journey with him. Heavenly Father, we are here because we've either chosen to follow Jesus or are interested in following Jesus. So please teach us now why he is worth following and give us the faith we need to count the cost and follow. Amen. Open up your Bibles and Alison and David are going to come and read to us. The first reading comes from Luke chapter 9. Verses 51 to 62 on page 891. Verse 51. 
As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, and it's on page 891. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
And he replied, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Jesus warned that it would be costly to follow him. And as I look around this room tonight, I see people who've paid the cost. I see people who have paid the cost of their comfort, for whom it's cost family relationships. It's cost career opportunities. It's caused your intellect to be questioned, your social reputation to be tarnished, your your prospects to be inhibited. I, I know beautiful men and women for whom following Jesus has meant that they have had to forego potential loving relationships. It has meant celibacy. It's meant childlessness. It, it has come at a huge cost to many of you. And yet, I see that this church has been full of people all day. People who believe that Jesus is worth the cost. People who've been willing to count the cost and to follow him. But you walk into churches around Australia and you'd think that Jesus just is desperate for anyone who's be willing to follow him. You know, basically, as long as you don't hate him, you'd think that he wants you to come and just come along for the ride. But no one's doing Jesus any favours by watering down the heat of his call to give up everything and follow him. When people ask me what kind of Christian I am, I always say I'm I'm a Bible-believing Christian because following the Jesus of the Bible is a rush. It's a thrill. It'll cost you. It'll cost you greatly. It'll cost you everything. But Jesus offers you everything, everything. It's all stored up. It's coming in the age to come. The explorer Ernest Shackleton, when he was looking for men to join him on his adventure to the Antarctic, apparently placed an ad in a London newspaper that read this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. He was flooded with applications. You see... 
No one's doing anything for Jesus when they water down the cost of his call. No one is willing, no one is, is, but those willing to give up everything to follow him will do. And amazingly, churches are still full of people and millions of people around the world are coming to put their trust in him every year. So why follow Jesus? Tonight, we're going to do a simple cost-benefit analysis of following Jesus. It's a good news, uh, it's a good week for the accountants amongst us, but we're going to spiritualize things a little and it's going to be a cost-blessings analysis. We're going to look at uh, what is there to lose, what is there to gain, and why is Jesus worth it? So let's begin by thinking about the cost of following Jesus, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, if you've closed it or lost it like me. Page 891. The first cost of following Jesus is that we have to remember that we are following a crucified king. Verse 51 marks the beginning of a new section of Luke's gospel known as the travel narrative. It's a a story of how Jesus set out to head towards Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 51 reads, Halfway through, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Quite literally, it says, he set his face towards it. He he set his face with steely resolve to go towards Jerusalem, knowing exactly what would await him there. He knew that Jerusalem meant his death. Three times he predicted it, that there he would be rejected by the elders and chief priests and be put to death. And he says that anyone who wants to come with me on this journey must daily take up a cross and follow me. Taking up your cross daily doesn't mean wearing our beautiful little gold necklaces. It doesn't mean calling your difficult next-door neighbour the cross that you have to bear or the head cold you've got at the moment is not your cross. No, carrying your cross means being someone who has died to your own self to your own personal aspirations, dreams, and ambitions, and you have lived, you come alive to God. And you begin living out his dreams, his ambitions, his aspirations for your life. But following a crucified king like this, not only will it mean giving up on your own dreams and hopes, but it will also mean facing rejection, facing misunderstanding, This was a reality that James and John, Jesus' disciples, found a little difficult to come to terms with. So when Jesus set out on this journey and decided to pass through Samaria, a place that was very hostile to the Jews, well, he found that he was not welcome in this village. And James and John came up with a helpful suggestion. They had a great idea. Verse 54, they thought, Lord... Would you like us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Perhaps they were a little trigger happy. Maybe the the miracles that they'd seen uh, Jesus perform had got to their head. But there was an Old Testament precedent for this because the prophet Elijah had been tested by the Samaritans. He'd been rejected and, and 50 soldiers had come against him. And Elijah had said to them, If I am the real deal, If I am a true prophet of God, you will know if fire falls down from heaven and consumes you. And bang, it dropped. 
So James and John think, Jesus, let's show them that you're the real deal. Let's burn up the place. But Jesus knows that the way to show that he is the real deal sent from God is to keep going on his journey to Jerusalem, to keep going towards his death. The next cost of following Jesus is wholehearted commitment. As Jesus continued on his journey, he encounters three would-be disciples in verse 57 and following. The first guy, he, he seems all in. Perhaps he's heard lots of reports about Jesus and the miracles and deeds he's been doing. He's, he's heard about the crowds. And, and what luck, because today Jesus is coming past his place. And he says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. To him, Jesus responds, verse 58, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Following me will mean giving up your creature comforts. It'll mean that you don't know where you're going to be tomorrow, the day after, or the year after that. It's going to cost you your comfort. And this... Man looks back at his newly renovated master bedroom that he's just put on the side of the house. He thinks about his walk-in wardrobe, his and hers basins in the ensuite. It's too costly. He's not going to do it. Jesus invites the next would-be disciple to follow him. This man seems to have a much more legitimate excuse. First, he says, let me go and bury my father. Now, I don't think we're to take that Jesus has interrupted this guy on his way to the funeral parlour, but rather that he's, he's confronted this guy with the custom, the custom of staying with your parents until their death, which would then render him free to go and follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes back at him with some of the harshest words that come off his lips. Verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's akin to the Jesus' teaching that unless we're willing to hate even the members of our own family, we're not worthy to be his disciples. It just seems so wrong coming off the lips of this man who is all about loving God and loving our neighbour as ourselves. But sometimes Jesus would teach in hyperbole like this to teach us that unless our love for God was so primary, unless our commitment to Jesus came first, even over and at great cost to those around us and those nearest to us, the members of our very own family, then we were not worthy of being his disciples. A similar kind of challenge came to the third would-be disciple. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. First, just let me go back, say goodbye to the family, then I'm all yours. Again, there's an Old Testament precedent here. When, when Elijah the prophet was looking for disciples, he found the young Elisha. Elisha was plowing in his family field behind a team of 12 oxen. And Elijah came along and said, Elisha, follow me. Elisha said, I will follow. First, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. So he took the 12 oxen, slaughtered them, broke apart the yokes and the, and the plough, cooked them all up, had a huge party for the family, and then off he went and followed Elijah. And Jesus says, one more important than Elijah is here. 
one whose call on your life is even more urgent. There is no looking back if you're going to come and follow me. He warns, verse 62, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And we know from the Bible, don't we, the dangers of looking back. We know Lot's wife, she looked back on her life in Sodom and she turned into a pillar of salt. We know the Egyptians, they looked back on their life in Egypt, the, the Israelites, they looked back on their life in Egypt as they left in the Exodus and they were prevented from entering into the promised land. There is no looking back if you're going to follow Jesus. Jesus is only after those who would be willing to give up everything and follow him. Now, all that being said, it's worth mentioning that homes, loving relationships with family, secure livelihoods are the norm of Christian discipleship. But from time to time, because God loves you, he will lead you to forks in the road where you are forced to make a choice between your comfort, the customs of your family, or the conventions of those around you, or or your career, or Christ. And at that point, Jesus says, will you follow me? And I found in my personal experience that the big decisions are normally the result of a whole lot of little decisions. And so actually, it's the choices you make every day at the little forks that you get to that really count whether you keep choosing Jesus' way or choose your own way. And if you keep choosing your own way at each one of those forks, because God loves you, he'll lead you to a T-junction, just a a straight-out black-and-white choice where you are forced to choose one of two directions. You go down, you go your way, or you go up, you go Jesus' way. And that's where these men got to. These guys were forced with a choice to choose their comfort, their customs, their conventions, their careers, or Christ. And when you get presented with that choice, please choose Christ. Well, the last cost is that of being a messenger of the king. You might start to think, well, with all the Samaritan rejection, the the three would-be disciples, maybe no one's into counting this cost. It's too great, Jesus But the very next scene in Luke chapter 10, we're introduced to 72 others who would count the cost. The number 72, it's important, it's symbolic. It's representative of many different things in the Bible. There were, in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, there were 70 nations. When Israel was being formed out of Jacob's family, there were 70 members of his family who went to live in Egypt, where the nation was truly birthed. And when Moses was leading the one million Israelites out of Egypt 400 years later, there were 70 elders that he decided to appoint to govern and guide and, and, and rule over God's people. And so it's Jesus' way of looking forward to the mission to all the nations, of saying this is the mission of all God's people of saying, this is what I will entrust to my disciples after I'm gone, to carry on this mission of leading and guiding and governing my people. 
And so whilst the instructions that were given to these 72, they're not directly applicable to you and to me, but the mission they went on certainly is. And the lessons of what it costs them are lessons that we need to take to heart. As messengers, their, their mission involved toil. It was hard, hard work. Jesus was looking for workers for the harvest field. And if you're a city slicker like me, you've never done a harvest, here's a few things about harvests. They're hard, they involve blood, sweat, tears, they're urgent, you can't diarise them when they come, you've got to drop everything and get to, get to work in them. And friends, now, today is the day of the harvest. Uh, ultimately, the, the Bible tells us, Jesus told us, that when the day of salvation finally comes to a close, when the when the door of opportunity to respond to God is shut, the work of harvesting will be the work of God's angels who will go out and harvest. But until that day, harvesting is your work and my work. And we're to go out and, and get involved because today is the day of salvation. Soon and all too soon, the opportunity will be passed. Harvesting involves toil. It's hard work. So when was the last time you shed some holy sweat? When was the last time you got involved in a ministry or a mission activity that was hard yakka, that cost you, that kept you up late at night, got you up in the morning, that made you exhausted, that, 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 that labor of prayer was required? When was the last time you labored in prayer over the five people we've been asking you to pray for each and every day. It's costly and toilsome work. It's dangerous work. Jesus sent his disciples out, verse 3, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Often Jesus' mission looks unnecessarily dangerous, like single female missionaries going to Muslim-majority nations to preach and proclaim Jesus like young families moving into housing commission areas to share the love of Jesus with their neighbours. But it's when lambs go out and take on wolves that we really see the kingdom of God powerfully at work. They were called to the costly work of straightforward proclamation. Jesus summed up their message in just one verse. You'll, you'll find it in verse 9 of chapter 10. Here's what he wanted them to do. Heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. I've tried sharing the gospel with my friends in so many different ways. Read this book, watch this podcast, uh, or listen to this podcast, you know, uh, come along with me to this event, take a look at the stars, how could you deny a creator, all different types of things. But nothing hits it as well as just Jesus is the one that God has appointed, king of heaven and earth, and you need to respond to him. If you match that message with some love for the needy and care for the vulnerable, you can be assured that less people will want to keep hanging out with you and being your friends. Uh, yet, you'll probably find that more people want to be in heaven. And, uh, and not only are we called to that straightforward proclamation, we're also called to what I think is one of the hardest things, which is warning people of judgment. Uh, it's... Good news, the kingship of Jesus to those who will welcome it, but terrible news to those who will uh, refuse to submit to Jesus' rule. Lovingly warning people of the danger they are in 
is part of our call, part of the cost. Jesus instructed his disciples when they were rejected by a village or a town to go out into the main street and to dust off the dust of their shoes as a way of marking the separation between that town and God and his messengers. And then they were to warn that they had missed the opportunity of their visitation. Jesus went on to warn that even the most godless of pagan cities, Sodom, that godless, vile place, Tyre and Sidon, those, those God-hating nations, those God-hating nations, even for them, the judgment would be better than those towns that rejected Jesus and his messengers. So the Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, where Jesus, where God had brought about the greatest revelation of himself in all of history in the presence of himself in the person, Jesus Christ, those towns that would reject his visitation would face a worse fate in the judgment than the godless places like Sodom and Tyre. Jesus was never apologetic about his warnings that if you rejected him, if you rejected his message, if you rejected his messengers, then ultimately it would result in your rejection by God himself. Jesus spoke of Hades, the realm of the dead. He spoke of hell, a place of punishment, of fire, of anguish, a place of never-ending torment. And he didn't do it to scare us. Just like we don't put warning and danger signs on dangerous situations in our society. We do it to protect people. And no one knows the danger of judgment beyond this life, of hell, like Jesus, the one who has come from heaven. No one knows it better than him. And he loves us, and so he warns us. And could, be, could the same be said of you and me? Do we give people that loving warning? Are we trigger-happy like James and John, wishing God's judgment upon some people? Or are we too scared even to mention God's judgment at all? It is a cost, but it is a loving thing to do. It's the most loving thing we can do to tell people of that danger and tell them where they can run for safety. Well, there's more that could be said about the costs of following Jesus, but let's turn our attention to the blessings analysis. And let's see why it might be worth the cost to follow Jesus. The blessings of Jesus, I've got four of them. Parties is the first. I couldn't think of a better one-word summary, but basically the idea is that if Jesus is the suffering servant, it's important to remember that his life was anything but bland. The guy couch-surfed around Israel for three years. He held Woodstock-style teaching rallies out in the wilderness. Everywhere he went, he was celebrating and rejoicing. There was always a good time to be had around Jesus. And the same is true of people today. I think of my friend Marty. His job is to go to wherever an Olympics is going to be hosted and to teach the churches in that place how to make the most of this community opportunity, how to run community festivals, how to celebrate and share the good news of Jesus wherever people are going to be gathering. Following Jesus is a rush. You may not be partying with the top end of town, but if you're happy to party with the people that Jesus chooses, there will always be things to celebrate. There will always be good news stories and, and, and things 
happening in the lives of God's people. Next blessing is provision and power. What an irresponsible mission leader Jesus was to send 72 messengers out with no preparations for their provision. But did any of them end up in need? No, they found wherever they went people of peace, spiritually open people, people who were open to discussions about God and faith and life and meaning, and people who saw that the spiritual gift that these messengers brought was worth providing a physical gift for. So they opened up their homes, opened up their lives, opened up their pantry and provided for these messengers. And, you know, though Jesus hasn't given us these same travel light instructions, although sometimes I wish he he did. I I went on holidays just the other day, and and it can take up to five hours to pack our family car with bikes on the back, boards on the roof, Tetris-style suitcases. We're not to necessarily follow these instructions, but we could probably all learn to lean on Jesus a little bit heavier, couldn't we? How do you know if a crutch is going to support your weight unless you lean on it? How do you know if a rope is going to hold you unless you let go a little? Jesus has promised to be utterly dependable. And you can go out on a limb. You can risk things a little for him. And he will come through. That's what the experience of these guys and these men and women was, were as they went out. But it wasn't God's provision that they came home raving about. It was power. God's power at work in them. They had authority in the name of Jesus. And you can picture, as Peter taught us to, picture the buzz in the room at the mission debrief meeting in verse 17 of chapter 10 over the page. Lord, you wouldn't believe it. Even the demons were submitting to us in your name. Jesus responds, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Very literally, I was watching Satan fall. In this mission of Jesus' disciples going out, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom, casting out demons, Jesus was watching Satan's kingdom topple. And he was rejoicing. He was pumped. He was overflowing with joy. How remarkable that these penniless, defenseless lambs can go out on a mission for Jesus and rock the spiritual world. And whilst it's a buzz to do that, it's exciting to rock Satan's cage and to exercise spiritual power, Jesus warns that it's not a good grounds for joy. The most unshakable grounds for joy is the promise, the third thing, the promise of life. Verse 20, Jesus reminds them, However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, as these 72 will later work out, seasons of fruitfulness in ministry will come and go. There's going to be times where God is doing amazing things in your life and through your life. People coming to know and trust in him. And then there's going to be those times where it seems like God's just doing nothing at all. But while seasons of fruitfulness come and go, there are no seasons to being known by God. And that's the best place to find your joy, that your name is written in heaven, written in the Lamb's book of life, and no one and nothing can ever take it away. 
The fourth blessing is a peek into heaven. What the disciples have been experiencing is something that Jesus says the greats of the Bible would have wished to have seen. Blessed are your eyes, he says, to see what you've seen. Blessed are you to know what you know. Kings and prophets wish they could have seen this. And I hope that you know that. I hope you know that Moses and David would have loved to sit where you sit right now and see the fulfillment of all God's plans and purposes in the person of Jesus. You can often sit here, can't you, and think, imagine if I could have seen the Exodus, seen the fire on the mountain, seen David topple Goliath. Well, David and Moses would have loved to sit where you sit and see what you see, that Jesus is here and God has arrived and heaven is breaking into earth. And that's what we're seeing as the kingdom was being proclaimed. Heaven was breaking into the present. In the ministry of these disciples and even in our work of proclaiming God's kingdom today, we see Satan's kingdom on the retreat. Heaven moving forward and we see God's blessings coming, people being healed, demons being cast out, the kingdom being proclaimed. We're discovering people whose names are written in heaven and we're getting a taste of the glories of heaven. It can't wait. It's too exciting. It's bursting into the here and now. So we see that the blessings of Jesus, whilst they're firmly fixed in heaven, they do burst into the present. Uh, We can party with people of peace. We can experience God's provision and power. And we can have the privilege of seeing lives transformed. But either way you put it, there's going to be costs and there's going to be blessings. So let's conclude with a cost blessings analysis. Let's first think about the cost blessings analysis of choosing not to follow Jesus. Choosing not to follow the cost that you'll pay is a cost that ultimately you will pay in the life to come. There is cost in the here and now. I think if you choose to live in God's world and choose to reject his ways, there's going to be real costs. But ultimately, the cost is stored up for the life to come. But Jesus says it is a great cost. And let me lovingly warn you, it is a terrible cost. And there's no reversing it on the other side of death. But the blessings... Well, the blessings you can get as much as you can get from life now. A friend of mine uh, said to me once, you know, for those who choose not to follow Jesus, this is as good as it ever gets. And so if this is as good as it gets, then get as much of it as you can. They're the blessings. Keep running your own life. Do things your own way. Pursue as much of your own pleasure as you can. But remember this, that 100% of the time, in 100% of the cases, It will not last. So you can go after that. What about the cost blessings of choosing to follow? Well, the costs will be great. It may even be so great, it may even cost you your life. But all of your costs will be paid in this present age. They will all be born now. I've actually come to discover that things I used to find as great costs don't really worry me so much anymore and, and I'm much more willing to pay all those costs and I, I keep seeing it as actually a blessing. But there's going to be seasons in your life where you just really feel the pinch and you feel that cost. 
And my friend who said that for those who don't follow Jesus, this is as good as it gets, also reminded me that for those who do follow Jesus, this is as bad as it ever gets. All the best is yet to come. And that's the blessing. There are many blessings now. Jesus said, you can have life and life to the full if you follow me. But ultimately, there is eternal life and eternal blessings waiting that will never, ever end and can never, ever be taken away from you. So Jesus puts the invitation to you. The cost blessings analysis is all before you and he says, will you follow me? Will you follow me? And he doesn't want from you more commitment. He wants from you faith. Because let me ask you a question. Where were these 72 when Jesus ended the journey to Jerusalem? When he got to Jerusalem and went to the cross, they weren't there. He was alone, abandoned, rejected. No one could do it. No one could count the cost and go all the way. Only Jesus could do it and only he did it. Only he could be faithful to God all the way. And he went to that cross and he died on that cross for you and for me. And he did it so that he could wash away all our failures, forgive all the wrong turns that we've made, make sure that you know that your name is written in heaven and know that no matter which way you turn when you get to those forks, ultimately your destination is secure. Your name can be written in heaven if you trust in the king who went to the cross. And you can know that he will get you there no matter what. So friends, Jesus comes to you as he'll come to all these others that he encounters on his journey to Jerusalem and he will ask, will you follow me? Will you count the cost? Because he promises that though it's a cross now, it'll be a crown that you'll pick up in the age to come. Let's pray that we have faith to count the cost and follow him on this journey. He is no fool who gives up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. God, give us faith to follow Jesus, no matter where he goes, no matter what it costs us. Show us, remind us, refresh us, help us to see why he's worth giving up everything for and give us faith to follow him and not look back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.